night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Dale Peterson, Ph.D., uh, primatologist and author of The Ghosts of Gombe, a true story of love and death in an African wilderness. On July 12, 1969, Ruth Davis, a young American volunteer at Jane, Dr. Jane Goodall's famous chimpanzee research camp in the Gombe Stream National Park of Tanzania, East Africa, walked out of camp to follow a chimpanzee into the forest. Six days later, her body was found floating in a pool at the base of a high waterfall. Dr. Peterson reveals for the first time the full story of day-to-day life in Goodall's wilderness camp. The people and the animals, the stresses and excitements, the social conflicts and cultural alignments, and the astonishing friendships that developed between three of the researchers and some of the chimpanzees during the months preceding that tragic event. Uh, Dr. Peterson is an award-winning author. He um, just lost my place here. Dr. Peterson is an award-winning author. He's been recognized by the New York Times and the Boston Globe. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Peterson. Well, uh, thank you, Catherine. Uh, you can call me Dale if you like. And okay. I, I should, uh, I, I'm an amateur primatologist, not a professional primatologist. I have a PhD in English. So that, that in itself is a story which I'm happy to talk about. All right, let's talk about that story, about your career. So you're an amateur primatologist, and you have had an unusual career. Let's, as I understand it, you were a a carpenter, you got a PhD in English literature from Stanford University, then you you became a professional writer, and you, uh, according to you, I guess you write about subjects that you obviously have had no expertise in. So how do you do that, and why do you do that? Well, um, you know, I, I, I got the Ph.D. because I was interested. Well, first of all, I enjoyed reading books and reading literature. Uh, but I also, my lifelong ambition was to be a writer. And uh, so I did, as you mentioned, become a carpenter after getting the degree uh, rather than becoming a professor because I wanted uh, time to to write and um, I always felt that writing is a general skill, it's not a specialized skill so theoretically you should be able to write about anything and I started writing about computers which I knew nothing about Uh, having done that and having succeeded uh, with five books on computers uh, then I asked myself what I what would I really want to write about, and the, the answer was I'd really like to write about endangered animals, and then the question was what kind of animal, and the answer was primates, and I can't explain where that came from except I saw an article in a newspaper about an endangered primate. Um, the primates are a group of, um, at, at this moment, roughly 425 species of monkeys, apes, uh, lemurs, and other similar animals. Uh, humans are considered to be a primate as well. So it's a very large and very interesting group, and, and uh, you know, the primate species 
that is probably the best studied of all is chimpanzees. And Jane, Dr. Um, Jane Goodall obviously is the the special, right. the yeah. world famous primatologist. Yeah. So how, I am I'm assuming that when you decided you wanted to write about this topic, that you would want to connect with her, which you did. So how did you do yeah. that? Well, first I had to learn about primates, and I did that by traveling around the world. And um, I, my first book was on primates of the world, endangered primates of the world, and I did that did the research for the book by finding the world's 12 most endangered primates. So I traveled through South America, went down the Amazon River, across Africa into Southeast Asia. And having done that, then I thought, well, now I'll write about the most fully studied primate species, chimpanzees. And that's when I got in touch with Jane Goodall and, um, I had actually gotten in touch with a, 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 another um, expert named Geza Teleki and uh, asked him if he would be my consultant for this book on chimpanzees. And he said, so I went down to see him in his house in Washington, D.C., and he said, well, sure, I'll, I'll be your consultant, but how would you like to write a book with Jane Goodall? So I said, sure, of course. <laughs> and so Geza introduced me to Jane. So that was and the beginning of a friendship as well. That was the beginning of the friendship. Jane and I co-authored a book together in the early 90s. And, um, you know, co-authoring a book with somebody is a, is a little bit like getting married. It's, um, you know, it's, there's ego involved, there's money involved, there's time involved. And if it doesn't work out, you can wind up hating the other person. Yeah. And, if it and does doesn't work there have out, to be, before you said that, I'm thinking there has to be, when you talk about it, it's like being married or having a relationship with somebody, right. a partnership. It's, uh, there has to be a chemistry, doesn't there? Where right. that chemistry there does. Comes it's from? a very intense relationship, co-authoring a book. And you have to have a fundamental agreement about, you know, underlying ideas. And uh, it turned out that Jane and I did, and it was the start of you know, a 30-year friendship that continues to this day. So tell us about Jane before. What kind of, what are her strengths? What are her weaknesses? Uh, you know, paint a picture of of who she is, aside from, right. you know, her area of expertise. Right. Well, I, I, I will. It, it's, uh, I, I didn't mention that after the the co-authored book, I wrote her biography, which uh, involved you know, 10 years of research, reading all of her personal letters, traveling with her, getting to know every member of her family who is still living. And uh, so I know her um, probably as well as anybody with the possible exception of her sister and so on, uh, and possibly even better than her sister. Um, And so, you know, as a biographer, I think you secretly hope that there's some kind of dramatic scandal uh, involving the person you're writing about because it could make a more interesting story. And there's no dramatic scandal with Jane. She's, she's pretty much what people imagine she is. She's just a very, very nice, very talented, um, very focused, and extremely um, energetic person. Um, so that's the first thing you need to know about her. She 
pretty much is is as she seems. There are no dark secrets uh, with Jane. Um, I was were, waiting for a dark secret, but I, okay, so we're not going to have that. <laughs> she is as well, he is. You know, she, the, yeah. There were a few things that she had. She was reluctant for me to write about, but. Uh, in the end, you know, she was happy with the book, and um, I didn't have any. The, the, here's another thing about her: is she's very uncontrolling. So she never asked me what I was writing about. I mean, I spent all of this time. I would sit next to her and be writing things in a notebook, right? And she never asked me. She never wondered what it was, and she never asked to see the book. But that and has a lot to do with, about, this has a lot to do with you, too, because obviously she trusted you. Yeah, I mean, she must have she had, did, you talk true. about a relationship, she had to have right. a real trust in you to not be on top of you or not try yeah, to control what yeah. you were saying or what you were doing. Right. You're absolutely right. That another person, she might not have been very happy about it. And so there was this two-way trust. Um, she, uh, you know, I... I never, she never even asked, you know, we never had an agreement that she would see what I had written before it was published. And so there was a time when I thought, well, maybe she doesn't care. But at the end, you know, before it was published, I said, Jane, would you like to see the the manuscript? And she said, sure, of course. And she read it and she had a few corrections to make, but there was nothing major. And then... um about a, a couple of two or three months after she had read the manuscript, I happened to be with her in Paris, France. She was receiving the Legion of Honor medal. Uh, I went to that ceremony at the, you know, the Prime Minister's Palace, and uh, uh, and so I spent a, a, a few days with her and. One evening, actually, it was after the evening that she received this great award from the government of France. Um, we were all sitting around in her hotel room, including myself and Jane's personal assistant and a couple of other people, and uh, drinking scotch after this long day and relaxing a bit. And I wasn't paying much attention to anything, but I began to realize that Jane was talking to me. Uh, and then I began to pay attention, and she was, well, she was talking maybe about me, but she was saying, you know, um, all of these journalists, they, they write about my hair, and they say, uh, Jane Goodall has gray hair. And she, then she said, I don't have gray hair, do I, Dale? What do you think? <laughs> and I realized, well, I'd written about her gray hair in the book. Uh, and I said, well, Jane, uh, I don't know. It, um, you know, it looks kind of silvery to me. And she said, Dale, what color is my hair? And then she, she, was, she had been sitting on her bed. I was sitting in a chair. She came up, and she sat in the chair next to me in her hotel room, and she undid her ponytail. I'd never seen her hair down. I had always seen it in the ponytail. And she put, spread out her hair in front of the lamp, I could see it fully. And I said, well, you know, Jane, it's kind of a honey color in here, and there's silver over here, and there's a little bit of blonde here, and some brown, and some... Thank you, Dale, she said. And then she put her hair back in the ponytail, and she went and sat back down where she was. So, (laughs) 
<laughs> if you read the book, you'll see on the, either the first or second sentence of the book that I talk about the color of her hair in great detail. And that's the, but that's the only thing that was personal that she asked me to change, which just is amazing to me. This person who, she's just too busy to, she's not petty. She's, she's not, not a petty, petty person. No, yeah. she doesn't. Well, I, I'm thinking about, I was reading the, the prologue to the, the Ghosts of Gombe, and you described when she went to um, Tanzania and she had a t- complete, what, 24 years, she was 24 years old. She didn't have her PhD either at the time, and she was with her mother, and the way in which she approached the chimpanzees and going out into the forest. Talk to us just a little bit about that. Like, I mean, it was like a, a very different way of uh, researching these animals, wasn't it? Right. Her, yeah. Well, it was. Uh, nobody had actually studied chimpanzees to any degree before Jane did. And one of the reasons was people felt they were extremely dangerous wild animals. They are very strong, they're very powerful animals, everybody from, you know, we knew that from zoo studies, that chimpanzees are pound for pound, seven or eight times stronger than a a well-exercised male human, and so they can tear you to pieces, and that was probably the main reason why nobody had studied them until 1960 when Jane Goodall showed up with her mother and set up her tent in camp. She had an African cook with her and named Dominic Bendola, ben, Bendora. So there were just three people there. And Jane would go out by herself. And she had no um, expertise. She did not have a college degree. She did not have a PhD. But the fact was, it wouldn't have mattered because nobody knew anything about chimpanzees. So she was starting afresh. And what she had was this intense passion, uh, a very strong sense of self-confidence, a love of animals, and a capacity, a, a tremendous capacity for focus. So she could sit still for hours and hours and hours watching and waiting for something to happen. Uh, so she broke through the, you know, the barrier. She, the chimpanzees... Eventually, at first, they were scared of her. She was, you know, a strange new ape in their forest, and um, they didn't try to attack her, as many people imagined. They would run away. Um, Possibly, you know, these chimpanzees have been hunted by humans before, so it's quite possible that the sight of a a human uh, was terrifying to them. And uh, so she just kept, Uh, you know, staying there in the forest. She refused to, she didn't pretend to hide or try to hide, so she wasn't like a creeping, you know, possible predator in the forest. Uh, And eventually the chimpanzees just got used to her and they just just stopped running away from her. And that's when she was able to study them. And she made, you know, she discovered that chimpanzees eat meat until that moment, (laughs) until that moment. All of the scientists, none of whom had actually seen a wild chimpanzee, were convinced that chimpanzees are vegetarians. Uh, she also discovered uh, for the first time that chimpanzees make and use tools. Um, they're very primitive tools. They were using sticks and twigs and palm fronds uh, as um, objects to retrieve food. 
but there's still tools and until that moment you know the the standard line was that only humans use tools so she really did break through science and it made her famous very quickly she was by 1963 she was on the cover of National Geographic magazine and you know that was the start of her fame which is continues to this day well let's get back to the title of the book because there's some real inter- I mean uh, uh, the ghosts of Gombe a true story of love and death so I want to talk about some the love and the death part about it okay. and <laughs> because and the relationship that which I find interesting that intimacy that she I guess not only she but the people that she worked with which is part of your book the whole story had intimate relation I guess put that in quotations with right. the chimpanzees separate special relationships with each one of them um, so describe some of that to us I mean is that what how does that happen and how do, I mean they're living obviously the researchers are living together the scientists it creates a whole small community so lots is going on between and among them and also between and among them with the with the chimpanzees right absolutely and um, so the ghost of Gambia the, this is um, you know I I had written the biography of Jane, and this in some ways is a return to the biography, and it focuses on things that happened at Jane Goodall's research site um, in 1968 and 69. So Jane had been there since 1960. She had created this thing, as I said earlier. She had gone there only with her mom and an African cook. Uh, By the end of the decade, she was trying to create a much more expansive kind of a research center she was bringing in assistants and junior scientists. She had developed an African staff. She was training some of the Africans to do scientific research um, and bringing in you know, professional researchers. So it was the start of what is now still ongoing. The, the uh, Gombe Stream National Park has this research center in the middle of it that Jane still runs to this day by the late, 60s, as I say, she was just starting up this research center, and that's when she was bringing in assistants and, um, and and volunteers and trying to train them to continue with the research that she had begun. Um, the unfortunate thing, as you mentioned earlier, was that there was this death in uh, July 12th, um, 1969. And so the book focuses on the people who were there at the time and what happened, what was going on. The deaths uh, on, on July 12, 1969, I'll start with saying it was a disappearance. Uh, a young woman was following a chimpanzee out of camp, uh, and she disappeared. And so they spent six days looking for her, and they finally found the body at the base of a waterfall. Uh, it turned out that I had known um, this woman's um, lover, her boyfriend, uh, Geza Teleki, and Geza and I had been friends for, Geza was the one who introduced me to Jane, so um, Geza never wanted to talk about this. He just couldn't bear to. He had not been in the camp at the time that um, the, the young woman fell off a cliff and died, 
uh, and he refused to think about it. But um, in 2006, he telephoned me and said, uh, Dale, I need to talk. So he began talking about Ruth and her death. And it turned out that there were rumors uh, about what happened. Nobody had seen it, apparently. And so there are three ways to fall off a cliff. You can jump, you can fall accidentally, or you can be pushed. And there were rumors about all three ways. So um, my book and is an attempt to answer those rumors and, and try to reconstruct exactly what was going on during that period and exactly what happened. Um, so, so, And there are ghosts. I mean, people were genuinely haunted by this death. It was a terrible thing. I know it was terrible for everyone involved, including Jane. I, it was just a you know a terrible blow to her. Uh, she was not in camp either at the time. Uh, Geza, Ruth's lover, was just haunted by this death. And, in fact, uh, when he telephoned me in 2006, he had just had a, I don't know how to describe it, I, I guess maybe hallucination or a vision or something, but... Ruth, the woman who died, appeared to him in a situation he insists was not a dream, and uh, just wordlessly and came into his room at night and tried to crawl into bed with him and then just vanished. Well, uh, now, we, and- Dale, we have to leave it, which is probably a good point, we have to leave it <laughs> at this point because we have like a minute left. And I don't oh, want to give away the story, okay. obviously, but we want people to go out and get the book. Okay. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so we'll just kind of, you know, it's a cliffhanger, I guess. But okay. The Ghosts of Gambi, A True Story of Love and Death in an African Wilderness. And Dale Peterson is the author, Dale Peterson, Ph.D. Just quickly, Dale, um, website we can go to to find out more about the book and about you. Well, you know, my website, uh, com, and Peterson is S-O-N. Um, of course, the book is, should be in your bookstore. It should be on Amazon and so on. So uh, lots of ways of finding out about the book, and um, you can certainly contact me at my website. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News, opinion, Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Saida Hafiz. She's a nutrition coordinator and yoga instructor, as well as the author of The Healing, One Woman's Journey from Poverty to Inner Riches. As a child growing up in a suburb of Pittsburgh, the concept of being middle class seemed out of reach for Saida Hafiz. The home she grew up in, plagued by domestic violence and drug use, was a world away from the middle class ideal of some of her classmates. She shares her story of becoming her first sibling to graduate college and how her pursuit of learning to cook macrobiotic food and practicing meditation and yoga has helped to recover from chronic health conditions and heal from the family trauma she has inherited. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Saida. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. The healing. I guess probably this is the first question I suppose many people ask you. Uh, Why did you decide to write The Healing and why now? I decided to write The Healing because I needed to work through a lot of the issues and uh, flashbacks that I started having from my past that were coming up after I uh, began to clean up my diet. And through this journey, what I kept asking myself was, what could I tell my nieces and my nephews, especially my nieces, uh, about what had happened in our family and why some of the things uh, continued or persist and what I was doing about it to uh, break the cycle of poverty and violence through radical self-care. So I wanted to have uh, a documented source for my um, nieces and nephews and grandnieces and nephews to go go to, but also I wanted to do the inner work that it took to really... um, go forward and, and live a prosperous life. Yeah, and I must say, we, you know, we're taking a look at your background. Here you come from Pittsburgh. You grow up in, in, in poverty and abuse and drug addiction and all of those kinds of things, and suddenly you're the first person to go to college. But it's not like that, and then you jump forward and you go on a diet and everything is, is well, <laughs> or you're healed. So I want to go back. Like, let's talk about, like, what happened to you, what, you know, in detail, your family background, and why were you the first, why do you think you were the first one to be able to do this? Because you talk about your siblings not necessarily or not able to get out of that cycle of poverty like you did. Yeah, 
Yeah, so uh, firstly, I wanted to say that my older brother did go to college and he graduated. However, um, he was choosing different things that uh, didn't help him actually look at what was going on in the family. And so for myself, one of the questions that I kept asking myself was, what is a good life? And that started me on my journey. One is there's an aspect where I could say, okay, I just wanted to model myself after someone that I perceive to be successful, and I want to acquire all these things and do all these things. But what happened for me was I asked that question, sort of what is a good life, and then I went out and started to do the testing of it. And some things happen actually by accident that um, I signed up for cooking classes thinking that, okay, maybe one day I would like to have a family, will need to know how to cook. But also, even more importantly, I thought, I got this corporate job. How do I sustain myself with the energy that I see that you need to live sort of this corporate lifestyle? And when I signed up for uh, this cooking class, I thought that the class was going to be about creams and sauces because that's how I imagine middle-class life to be, but found myself in a course called Food as Medicine. And... As I got to that cooking class and started to listen to the information from my teacher, uh, Deborah Barr, who still runs her business in Pittsburgh, I had started to understand and the information she was giving me really did resonate with some deep internal uh, thoughts and feelings that I was having. And so I decided to, okay, I will go on this three-day no process, no sugar, and this is when it was not at all fashionable to do these sort of radical diets um, and to cook everything myself from scratch. And that sort of opened up an opportunity for me to see the past. But what that food also did was to open me up to, okay, now let's face the past. Don't pretend it didn't happen. Don't stuff it down or try to numb it. Let's well, let me ask you, I want to interrupt you, because is that what you were doing? Is that what you had to do initially? Let's say to get out of your situation, for instance, to be able to apply to college. You have nobody in your family who has any insider ideas or some, you know, to do that. And so you're doing that on your own. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of hearing you say, like, you kind of went through the the steps to do that, graduated, got this job, corporate job, but you were suppressing some of that stuff, you know, pretending that it didn't exist. And this was a different, mm-hmm. and you realized that that's not what you needed to do in order to continue to be healthy. You needed to face it, face what, ha- face your past and able to do that when your body's healthy. Yeah. So, yeah, let me explain a little bit um, deeper in terms of um, getting into college, I knew I didn't want to be in that um, that lifestyle or that structure that seemed very hard for my mom and, you know, four kids uh, living below the poverty line at that time under $10,000 a year. And she did, you know, say the way out is through education. And so although she wasn't able to really help me with a lot of the forms and things because she was busy and working, um, I was able to connect to, you know, guidance counselors and things at school to help me um, 
figure out how to really apply. And as I said, my older brother did go to college, um, and but his the way he sort of um, the way that he was building his life wasn't necessarily. Um, I think he was really trying to be something for someone else. Where for myself, I really decided, okay, what works for me? And so I was willing to try different things. And when I started following this um, sort of clean eating food program, um, and it's not necessarily a program. It's looking at how do you bring in foods and activities that support the best health. So there was one concept where I thought, well, I could just get into corporate work and and live this life, but I was really asking myself, like, what's the best quality life for me? Which, through my experiences, have really, I was open to listening to the answers. And so when I started eating in a way that supported more of my health and that I could think more clearly and face my um, past demons, then I realized that there was deeper work that needed to be done. And food was one part of it. Um, But again, I got into holistic health and holistic food and yoga, which really will ask you, how are you living your best self even before it was popular with Oprah, um, you know, proposing that question, how do you live your best self? And it really did guide me on, on this journey. So I feel that what came into play for my other siblings in terms of numbing the things that have happened in our family um, through sugar, drugs, and alcohol at various stages in their lives. For myself, I decided that I could face the shame, but it, again, it was a journey. What so is the shame? What, what, was think, the, what was the shame that you were facing when you talk about facing the shame and being able to do it through this process, but what was the shame? So what's very fascinating in our culture is that we often will blame the victim. So or blame the shame of, oh, I come from poverty. That's shameful. Well, in a sense, you just don't have money. Your actions in the present moment really define who you are. Uh, It's shameful to come from a family of domestic violence. And you end up having sort of these things that weigh you down, like, oh, I'm not like other um, students in college. Um, my parents aren't able to come and help me unpack and set up my room. So you end up having this shame, whether it's real or imagined, in the mind of, oh, a kid like me isn't supposed to rise above the statistics of what this poverty and domestic violence environment often can produce, which continues that cycle. So... When you have that going on, there's shame there. And then you have this internal question of who am I to rise above it? Who am I to do something different? Who am I to uh, get out of this situation and create something different for myself? 
In other words, there's, I hear you saying on some level, who am I? And so that you were hiding in a sense until you were able to come out, I guess, when you suddenly realized that this way of living your life with yoga and the macrobiotic diet helped you to really connect the mind body in a positive way and yes that is correct. yeah and then you were able to face those demons you were able to to take a look and and, and not hide uh, that you deserve that's right yeah um how how would you relate this because this is a huge problem today i mean we have so many people that are overweight and obese and unhealthy and don't necessarily make that connection that if you don't say eat well and nourish your body and life in in the way that you do that you're not whatever one's demons are and they're all different that you may it's very difficult to be able to to um really be in touch with yourself and those things that get in the way of leading a healthy lifestyle that is true. I think that a lot of times we feel that if we face who we are and the experiences that we come from, that we can't bear it. And so it's easier to choose in the moment. People feel it's easier to, to mask it, um, to pretend to be something else or to kind of allow yourself to fall into the trappings of, and I, and I put this out, you know, sometimes with marketing and, and I feel that, you know, a lot of times different companies or products know that we have this deep internal need to want to face who we are and become better. So there's often lots of things that say if you do one, two, and three, you'll be better, you'll fix it, um, whether you carry this particular purse or wear these particular clothes and but the real work is internal and a lot of times I've heard well I can't eat this way you know fresh organic etc because it's expensive and I got to a point where I thought well I'm going to pay more for what goes in my body than what goes on my body and And so I started to make those kind of choices where if I really wanted to improve upon my situation, I needed to understand that having a body that was more fit was better than what I could wear. And and that's kind of where this this journey was taking me of what choices am I going to be making in the moment along the way to heal my past, move forward, and essentially uh, be the best role model that I could be for others. Well, and, and it sounds like you're doing that. I don't know how long. What's the time frame? How long have you been doing this? Oh, I started um, essentially January 1990. <laughs> I've been All right, so it's been a long time, and you're with, also helping. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think it's important because it, not only do you uh, impart this knowledge to adults, but you're doing this with kids, with children as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so th- the nice thing is things have come kind of full circle with um, doing different 
education. And currently my position with San Francisco Unified School District is now looking at implementing the uh, strategic plan of how to have students lead their the wellness movement for themselves. So having that more empowerment, project-based learning. and But for about 14 to 16 years working for the school district, I gave direct service of nutrition and yoga in the classroom. And that was very thrilling. The strange thing was that I was seeing students who are growing up at that time, very similar to my background. So I knew that the power of being able to make something from scratch can be healing. And a lot of times I thought, I don't know what the outcome is going to be for my students, but I put the hat of the farmer on and I thought, all right, I'm going to plant seeds here and give them the opportunity to learn. And even if they don't change their diet or the, the parents don't change the diet right away, at least they're being exposed to something that is more than just fast food or the quick basics. So, right. so is, you've got a background you know, in teaching these kids and you've given them the basics and planting the seed of, of good health for them. Do they come back to you? Do you follow them? Do you see how, what, you know, actually what's happened, especially, you know, with the kids who have were in the same position as you, who came from, you know, impoverished backgrounds and, you know, similar kinds of um, experiences that you had? Where are they now? Do you know? Yeah, so I get some anecdotal stories um, that come back. There was one time I was at a board meeting speaking towards something and related to nutrition, and I had been working for the district probably over 10 years at that time, and a student came up to me who was also going to be speaking to the board about um, law enforcement in the schools, and she came up to me and said, oh, I don't know if you remember me, but I was in, I think, a second or, or fourth grade class, and you were my you know, cooking teacher, nutrition instructor, and she said, and this, remind you, this is elementary school, and she said to me, what you've taught me got me into working in better relationships between law enforcement and schools. And I was blown away because I thought, here I am teaching basic cooking tips in a holistic fashion, and this uh, student or recent grad comes back to me and, and tells me that there needs to be a better connection between how law enforcement connects and shows up in high schools. Um, and so I'm not sure exactly what I said to this gal, but there was something where connecting to who you are on that very basic level of feeding yourself, what you bring into your body affects you. And she translated whatever we learned in that series um, in her elementary school into, I want to help better relationships between um, high school students and law enforcement. Well, it would seem to me when you're putting good stuff into your body and you're teaching the children how to do that and about macrobiotic food, meditation, yoga, all of those kinds of things, that once you start responding to, to that and feeling good in your mind and body, you could be connected to all, all kinds of good things, whether it's law enforcement or 
you know, following your, you know, your dreams or your goals in, in any area, it would seem to me, because you're healthy. Your, your mind is healthy and your body's healthy. Yes, and you're hitting on something that I really like to always um, indicate. Everything is food. We bring in conversations, movies, um, news events. All of that is food. Our mind and body has to process that. And then what ends up happening is looking at or seeing what that outcome is. So for her, teaching that, me teaching that class, talking about food, giving the lessons that I was giving, and again, I can't remember exactly what I was saying to her, but she took that in, and her mind and body has processed that experience. And the output for her was, I want to make sure that we are having better relationships here in our communities. And so that's really what this healing is about. I take my journey from poverty to inner riches and look at the past. Those were experiences that my body and mind had to process. So what would the output be? Am I going to numb and pretend that it never happened? Or am I going to do the inner work, write the story, role model as best as I can, and share it with others who may be helped by this story? So that's really how I see it. We take in all these different elements, we process it, and then we have an agency or an action to, um, in a sense, choose how we're going to express what we've just experienced. Saida, what's the experience? What's the reaction uh, from your family? What you know, you you've done all of this and you've accomplished all of this, and you you know you came from a certain kind of a family. What about, how do they experience you? Well, it's very interesting. My brother, who, the one I told you, um, he was older, is older, graduated uh, for college, but had a really rocky um, up and down in his life. And, you know, he was an English major and a natural, a more natural practice writer. And I shared um, probably the first, third of the book with him and his response was be as raw as you can tell this story people need to hear this story we as a family need to hear this story so I was blown away by that I sent it to my parents because there was at one point where I thought oh I can't put this out there this is this will be embarrassing to my family Um, who knows I, I was at a really stuck point before Um, The book came out, and so I sent a third to my dad, a third to my mom, and their response back. So my my dad had said to me, he said, wow, and he said, you know, reading this, I'm really proud of you, and I realized that I just wasn't the man that I wanted to be. So there wasn't any denial of these things happening. Um, when I first tried to confront my family just in conversation way back when I was going through these diet um, revelations and flashbacks, they called me crazy. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> you need help. You're crazy. You need to deal with that. 
So it looks like everybody, we only have a minute left, so I I, I hate to cut you off, but it looks like sort of everybody in your family has done some healing as a result, not only of your successes, but of of your book, of being able to take a look at the book and take a look at themselves, which isn't always the case. That's a tough situation to be in. So um, you've you've healed a lot of people besides yourself and and obviously the children that you've been mentoring, but... Since we only have about a minute left, I want to, you know, I want to read the title over again so people can buy the book, The Healing, One Woman's Journey from Poverty to Inner Inner Riches. And uh, we've been talking to the author, uh, Saida Hafiz. And could you give us a website that we can go to that uh, more information about the book and about you in 30 seconds? (laughs) Great. Um, You can go to the website. The Healing by Saida, and that's spelled S-A-E-E-D-A dot com. So The Healing by Saida. And the last thing I would want to say is that I'm just really excited that this book is out there and that I love the work that I do with continuing to inspire the youth to lead the wellness movement and for each and every family to begin to face the demons and know that they can come out on the other side, but it's going to take some deep internal work. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today and and sharing that. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.